This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Three Baton Rouge, Louisiana officers killed, three others injured after a shooting in that city. The shooting comes after rising tensions between uh, the black community and police, and of course, something that has continued to re- uh, resonate uh, across uh, North America and certainly uh, in the United sta- uh, States. Joining us now is Bill Perfita. He's with Talk 107.3 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and he is with us now. Good afternoon, Bill. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. I know you must be a busy guy down there today. What is the mood of Baton Rouge right now? How are people feeling today? What's the mood? Well, I I will tell you, uh, uh, today uh, a lot of people have been expressing that it must be very, very difficult uh, to get up and go to work as a police officer in this city, yet we know that they are. Uh, people are very angry that this was an ambush, a planned and targeted attack by someone who uh, apparently came over a thousand miles to do just that, uh, not a local person. How do you explain that? What can you tell us about the shooter? Well, uh, uh, this man uh, who was killed by return fire at the scene, uh, we are now finding out uh, that he is... Uh, an honorably discharged Marine. He rose to the rank of sergeant. Uh, When he came out of the Marine Corps in 2010, uh, he kind of developed this alter ego online uh, as as a militant uh, activist. Uh, He uh, had posted a lot to YouTube and uh, talked about killing police officers. Um, uh, I I do think that there is uh, some sort of an organized movement, uh, very loosely organized, uh, that agendizes these people, much like the lone wolf terrorist attacks, uh, to go out and and um, and open fire on police officers. Our our uh, our very best police agencies are working on this. Their intelligence people tell them that yes, this was a premeditated and planned attack. Uh, the convenience store car wash combination uh, where where he uh, attacked uh, is very well known as a place where police officers come. Uh, and write their reports in their computers. It's part of our community policing initiative that we've had for many, many years. Uh, so uh, he had to have known uh, that there were going to be police officers, sometimes multiple police, police officers, at that location. Uh, for all intents and purposes, it seemed like this guy was a pretty good soldier. I mean, as, as you said, his record was, was good. Any idea what happened? How did he become radicalized? Well, you know, that's, that is something that uh, everybody is looking into. Uh, the FBI is looking into it. Uh, our state police is looking into it. The ATF is looking into it. Uh, and so far, the answer is we don't know yet. Uh, he had no kind of bad conduct reprimands or discipline on his Marine Corps record, yet immediately after leaving the Marines, he took on this radical uh, persona. Uh, he also said that he wasn't affiliated with any particular group. Uh, that uh, that don't try to put a label on me. It, it is uh, it is a very uh, a very puzzling psychological profile at this point. But remember, we just started looking into him about uh, about sixteen hours ago. Uh... We had heard comments and 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 people saying that perhaps he had. Uh, well, what was his military? How did he feel about his military experience? Uh, that is unknown. Uh, none of his none of his writings, uh, none of his rantings on YouTube address that really. 
Is this about race or is this about being anti-police, Bill? Uh, from what I have seen, and I, and I will tell you quite truthfully, I've not had the stomach to watch all of the YouTube postings that are available right now. But from what I've seen, uh, uh, he targeted police specifically. Uh, but there is a very, very strong racial element in the sense of he firmly believed that uh, police unfairly targeted African Americans in our society. What is the mood in Baton Rouge in regard to the relationship between the citizens and police? Well, you know, we have we have always had what I consider to be relatively good and relatively relatively respectful relationships broadly across this community. Uh, the incident 10 days ago, which made a lot of people ask a lot of pointed questions uh, and brought outsiders to our city to lead demonstrations, notwithstanding, right now, uh, we are looking at, as we always have been, how to improve relationships uh, between the police and the minority community in this city and still provide effective policing. I, I, I would certainly say we are not like a lot of big American cities where there is an absolutely virulent relationship. That has not been the case at all. Uh, the fact that one of the officers that was shot and killed was black, how does that change this discussion? Well, I think it, I think it changes it a lot. Uh, this, this officer was a 10-year veteran. He was very much into community policing. In fact, uh, in the days after the... Um, uh, Alton Sterling shooting, uh, he was posting and asking people that encountered him, look, don't be afraid to come up to me. Come on up, give me a hug. I'll give you one back. Uh, he was uh, a very sensitive man and a very good cop. And I think a lot of people, even people who perhaps are a little more agendized, are taking notice of the fact that this good man was one of the victims. Uh, at this point, just one arrest. Is there any way, is there any reason to think that he may or may not have acted alone? Well, I, I will tell you uh, that there's going to be another briefing today uh, at two o'clock Central Time, uh, and uh, the investigation has led all the way back to his home in Kansas City, Missouri, where, by the way. Uh, police officers who knocked on the door there were met by a man with a gun in his hand. Mm. Uh, so that is still an open question. There are a lot of people who believe uh, he did not act alone in the fact that he apparently had been in Baton Rouge for several days and someone was sheltering him, and they believe that, that you know he did some intel, knowing that uh, we had police officers that would be at these convenience stores writing their reports as part of our community policing program. Uh, obviously, Bill, there's been lots happening in your area. There's been lots been happening in the United States in regard to this sort of thing. Is attitude changing? Are we at a tipping point? Or will this just go down as another incident? No, no, no. I think, I think a door has been swung wide uh, with what happened in Dallas and then what happened here. Uh, I think the discussion is changing that we cannot expect our police officers to be unprepared, that we cannot expect that our police officers will be 
will be targeted for violence and that the public as a whole, forget about the, the political leadership, that the public as a whole will not demand that we change the discussion. So I, you know, I don't think this one is going to get written off, and God forbid if there's another one, it will add to that discussion in that direction. It's not, this time it's not going to get written off. Has this grown beyond uh, movements uh, like Black Lives Matter? Is this, is, has this discussion become now prevalent in the white community as well? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and I will tell you also, at least in Baton Rouge, in the African-American community, we have an awful lot of people yesterday, elected officials and civic leaders uh, who represent that community who stepped forward and said, this is unacceptable. We will not tolerate this. Are you worried about copycat scenarios? Absolutely. I, I think in, in this nation and in this world, if you look at things like these random violent acts, if you look at lone wolf terrorism, I think everybody who is breathing needs to have that not in the back of their mind, in the front of their mind. How do you think uh, police officers in Baton Rouge are feeling today? I, uh, they are um, they are grieving. They are grieving as individuals. They are grieving as a group. Uh, they are being extra vigilant. But you know what? What I've seen, and we uh, during our our program this morning, we talked to every police agency uh, in our area. Uh, they are pulling together, and they are concerned about protecting the community today. Uh, they feel that's the best way to honor the fallen officers. Uh, any reason, Bill, to think that this may escalate? Sure. Uh, nothing concrete, but I, I just think it is, it is the world climate right now. Uh, I, I think we have uh, a, a, a lot of people uh, that, as our sheriff said, have hatred in their heart, and when they see one person directed in this way, then you have to worry that, you know, there will be another. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, there is that possibility, and not a probability, but there's always that possibility. Why do you, you know, I mean, and this is all over the world, Bill, why do you think there is so much hatred right now? Uh, you know what, I, I, I wish I knew that. Uh, I, I really do. Um, I just think that we have had a, a, a society that has tried to examine criminal acts from a very microscopic sociological perspective for far too long. And, and you know, I think it's a forest for the trees type of scenario in a lot of ways. Uh, in the next week or so ahead, what can we expect, Bill? Uh, what needs to happen in Baton Rouge? Well, I, I, I think that uh, I, I think that we are going to uh, we're going to honor our fallen officers. We're going to continue to pray for one sheriff's deputy, 41 years old, who is in extremely critical condition right now. He has had two surgeries, uh, and uh, we are going to do our best to pull everybody together. Uh, and that's all we can do, and it's all we should do. Bill Profita has been with us, Talk 107.3 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Bill, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Uh, much appreciated. Our condolences go out to, of course, uh, all the fallen victims here, and good luck to everybody in Baton Rouge. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, uh, this is a, a fascinating discussion. A group, of rep a group representing young Asian Canadians is looking at breaking barriers between the Asian and black communities and has written a letter campaign to reach out to elders in their communities. 
Uh, now, we tried to get uh, Ren Ito on. He was one of the organizers of this campaign and uh, didn't get back to us uh, in, in time, Or but we will certainly still try to follow this up uh, uh, with him. Uh, the letter is Letter to Asian Mom, Dad, Uncle, Auntie, Grandfather, Grandmother. There's something I've wanted to talk with you about. Black people are a part of my life and important ways. They are my friends, my classmates, my partners, my family. Today, I'm scared for them. Even as we hear about the dangers that black people face, our instinct is sometimes to point at the ways we're different from them and to shield ourselves from the reality instead of empathizing. When a police officer shoots a black person, it's easy to think it's the victim's fault because we hear so many negative stereotypes about them in the media and at our own dinner tables. We face discrimination for being Asian in this country. Sometimes people judge us negatively because of our different accents or deny us opportunities because they don't think of us as leadership material. Many of our elders have not been able to practice their chosen professions because of their education from home was not seen or was seen as inadequate. Some of us struggle with poverty. Some of us are told we're terrorists and made to feel unwelcome. The police don't regularly gun down our children and parents for simply existing to the same extent that they do with the black and indigenous peoples. Employers, landlords, and institutions also often treat us better than black and indigenous peoples. In fighting for our own rights, black activists have led the movement for equality, not just for themselves, but for all as well. They've been beaten, jailed, and even killed fighting for many of the rights that Asians in Canada enjoy today. We owe them so much in return, we are all fighting against the same unfair system that prefers we compete against each other. Our struggles, while not all the same, are interconnected. I hope you join me in emphasizing... Uh, with the danger and grief of all parents, siblings, partners, and children who have lost their loved ones to police and violence. Or sorry, to police violence. We're all in this together and we cannot feel safe until all of our friends, loved ones, and neighbors are safe. We seek a place where everyone in Canada can live without fear of violence, racism, and discrimination. This is the future that I want. I hope you do too. That says the letter. And of course, as I mentioned, we tried to get the uh, people from the campaign and even the letter writer on, but uh, unable at this point. Uh, but, but certainly we'll continue to follow up uh, with this. We're going to bring in Theo Sellis, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works. He's with us now. Hi, Theo. How are you today? Very good. How are you? Scott? I'm doing very well, and I'm still thinking about what you said last week when we were chatting about something similar, and you were talking about race and talking to your students and such, and, and you know, are, are still are disappointed because we still even have to mention the word race because we all are the the, the human race. Uh, do you think that it's different whether you're black or white? I mean, are, are we wrong to think this is just a black and white issue? I think it's a human issue. I think the um, the way that we've come to look at each other and categorized each other and made assumptions uh, based on how people look is a that's got to be a, a human issue that everyone joins in to address. I don't think it is a black issue or a white issue or an Asian issue. I, I just think that that's a fundamental uh, issue that we have to resolve as a as a singular race, as, as opposed to treating it as if it's a, a multi-race issue, which 
you know, we've talked about um, is a fallacy, the idea that there's a number of different races and these races need to get along with each other better. We have to have better race relations. That contributes, I think, to the problem. So, uh, and, and I know the way you, you, you uh, like to discuss this and the way that you don't, but do you deal with racism differently depending on the race? Well, I, I mean, or do different races, you know, <laughs> handle racism it's a differently? Fallacy. It's a, you can't, it's a, it's a place of non-beginning to yeah. say, um, there is no such thing as a race, but do you deal with it differently depending on the race? Like, it's not, it's a non-starting point. Do people who look a particular way, who have a particular pigment, who come from different places, tend to be hurt, harmed, discriminated against more than others? That's not, uh, I don't think that's arguable. I think that's, that's very true. And so we need to address that issue um, and make it very clear that um, this is all based on a great big fat lie, this idea of multi, multi-races. Like, you know, go back to my example with my students. I say to my students, what is a, what is a relationship like? If you see someone with uh, dark skin and someone with white skin and they're in a relationship, what's that called? And they call, is that an interracial relationship? And I say, well, if we buy the idea that there's no such thing as multiple races, then everything's an intra-racial relationship. And it just makes as much sense as Paul, and we might as well call it an interpigmental relationship. That makes a lot more sense. But then that would be kind of silly, too. People would go, well, that's ridiculous. That'd be like having an intra-height relationship or something like this. So we, we need to get past this old language and think about things differently and, and stop having this idea that we can solve things best by using the same language that brought us to have the same have the problem in the first place. Hmm. Were we aware, or is it commonly known, that there's tension between these two communities? Sorry? Were we aware that there was t- racial tension between these two communities? It's no, it's not, it's not something that I was specifically um, aware of. I mean, I'm not a member of that community, so again, I'm going to have to say, well, that might be something I'm not as sensitive to or being uh, exposed to. But again, you know, it doesn't surprise me because, again, there's clear differences in terms of background and appearance. And so anytime humans get to that particular place, it's very quick, very easy for us to quickly make assumptions of what people are and start to think people are less than because they're not. Um, you know, not looking homogeneous. Uh, with Canada being the melting pot that it is, I mean, can this be directed at any one race? I mean, what is, as you said, what is race? What's the norm in Canada? I mean, it's everything. Yeah, well, you know, I think though Canada has been sort of like the position, and maybe I learned it differently back in high school, that the uh, U.S. was the multi, melting pot and Canada was the mosaic. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, maybe there's Maybe uh, maybe that's our approach, is that we have a little bit more um, openness to incorporating difference. Um, and so, you know, I, I mean, but I think even though that's the case, I think the assumptions that we make about those differences around the origin of those differences and some of the stereotypes that we still have about those, of course, create danger for some people. We're entering into all sorts of different layers or aspects of this discussion. Is it moving forward with activities of late? I mean, you know, especially if you look at what happened in Baton Rouge over the weekend. Is this just another event that will go down, or are we learning something here? You know, I think, you know, it's one of those both things. I think on one hand, in some areas, some communities, the tension is escalating, and partly because of... um, because of resistance to the uh, agenda, the message of um, organizations like 
black lives. There are people who are very defensive about that uh, and angry about that. And I think um, as, as long as um, you know violence and discrimination continues, that message now is now is that it's not going to be tolerated anymore. And I talked with you about that last time. Is that we're in an age now where you can't put it on the table, you can't hide it anymore. It's your videotape. It's like it's there. That's the person getting shot. That's the person being beaten. And so I think the issue is up front and center. It can't be denied anymore. And um, while the vast majority of people, I think, are moving to a place more of not just tolerance, because who just wants to be tolerated? I always find that offensive, the idea that someone's tolerated. Uh, but, you know, just hmm. appreciation that, you know, people have different characteristics, they look differently, they come from different places, they have different accents, they have different cultures. I mean, that's all cool, it's interesting, it doesn't have to be threatening. Uh, the situation that's happened in the United States in Baton Rouge over the weekend, uh, one of the officers killed was black. Is this a race issue? Is this an anti-police issue, an anti-authoritative issue? Well, I, I think right now, given the um, sort of the, the public uh, topic or the, the, the way things are framed, any time now that um, we can identify a specific what we call, again, um, wrongly what we call like race, anytime someone who is black is shot, um, you know, I think it puts forward that agenda. Like, you know, like, see, that's another example. So I think because organizations like Black Lives have put that forward and said, look, this is what's happening. A lot of us are getting hurt. A lot of us are getting killed. Something needs to be done. So anytime now that someone who is black gets shot or hurt, then that becomes part of that sort of racial uh, narrative. Do you think that the rest of us who are not black understand what the black community has to go through, what they experience or what can experience in some scenarios? Kind of a loaded question, eh? Because remember, you talked with you last time. Some people would say that two white guys like us yeah. need to be able that we don't even have a place at the table. How well, they're, well, they're all, they're all, everybody's welcome to call in, by the way, at 905 talking. Star 9900 on the cell. Well, you know, talking's always bad, isn't it? Hmm. Well, it, it, that's the thing. It's, like, it's a loaded question because, on one hand, you could say, well, how could we uh, understand? We don't live that experience. But then we create walls like that about anything, right? Like we could say, you can't understand because this issue because you're not the female or you're not that particular age or you don't have that particular sexuality or you don't come from that particular place. So you don't have a place at the table. You can't understand, you, you know. So then what do we do? We we then say, well, no one could understand except for people who look like you. But then that's kind of me, to me, that's sort of like almost like a the opposite, but still the same, mm -hmm. like making these assumptions about who can or who can't understand, who can relate and who can't relate. And I really want us to be able to approach this as humans who have varying degrees of capacity for empathy, for suffering, for communication, for careful listening, for respect, to learn from each other, rather than and sort of add to the story, which is, you know, you guys over there, how could you possibly understand? Well, that's not the point. The point is that fundamentally, can anyone really understand another person's experience? Should that stop us from trying? Probably not. I, I think it should encourage us to keep on trying so we can get a little bit better of an understanding and feel more connected with each other. Is this about uh, the individual's rights or for the greater good of the group? It seems that we're more concerned about ourselves lately than we are the survival uh, of the species, the survival of society. Can you help, help me understand how you've come to that? Well, you know, 
it seems that 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 everyone is out for themselves or their own little piece of the planet, their little own piece of the hood, their little. And and I guess you know we all should should have a right uh, to that. But there just seems to be a lot of hate in the world. There just seems to be a lot of unrest. There seems to be people aren't happy. <laughs> well, looking at this on a positive level, this this group, uh, this Asian community group that you've you've brought to our attention, who have uh, written a letter to uh, people in their community to reach out to people who are black and who they think may not be understood enough by them. I think that sort of speaks to the opposite, is that um, they're not just looking at themselves, they're looking at the experience of other people and wanting uh, people in their community to reach out and understand others. So maybe maybe that's kind of the opposite of what you're saying. Do we, do we on an ongoing basis, have to struggle with being selfish and egocentric and standing up for ourselves and uh, as opposed to other people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the uh, sort of idea underneath the underlying concept of racism that we can make the case that we're more important than those people over there and we can justify it by their appearance. So have we perhaps, you know, we, we, we talked for years about wh- whether it was gun violence and the mass shootings or whatever. Now it's certainly turned to a, a focus of shooting of police. Have we finally reached a tipping point where we're getting it and we're not just blowing off uh, what we're seeing and, and, and making excuses? Examples of that, like you said, this letter that was has been brought forth by the Asian community reaching out. Uh, have, have we got to a point where we've realized, yeah, this we can't go on this way? Yeah, I, you know, I think so. I think that's, but that's part of... You know, that's part of the accomplishments of people who make life inconvenient for people in authority. And, uh, you know, that's part of the whole protest. That's part of the value of, um, of organizations like Black Lives Matter is that, um, they refuse to allow this, um, this issue to just be kind of poo-pooed and sort of shoved under the table. You know, they, they're forcing the agenda by saying, we just simply won't tolerate it anymore. We just won't stand for it anymore. Whether, whether people agree with all of their position or not, it certainly does have the value of putting the issue front and center for everyone to have to deal with. Uh, we were just talking to a, a talk show host in Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana, and he was saying for the most part, uh, relations between the two communities, meaning police and citizens, black and white, has always been uh, you know, pretty good. They haven't, you know, it's been cordial, to, you know, as he put it. Um, obviously, there has been an underlying issue, uh, especially when you look at the history of the southern United States for for a, a great period of time. How, how do you change that culture? How do how do police services in the United States change this 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 scenario, this paradigm? to change the uh, culture of different communities that are sort of at war with each other? Yes. Um, one more okay. What's the um, Well, I think there's the idea that there are specific different communities, though, that we need to address. I always get a little antsy when I hear, um, you know, the black community or the gay community or the police as if we can make wild assumptions about everyone and the idea that they're all part of one community so that we, again, we, we know who these people are uh, and we can kind of all lump them all together. I think, you know, part of it, again, is this sort of separating ourselves by this kind of label or agenda or appearance. It's kind of like, uh, you know, again, 
Look, we're all members of the same community. We serve different, you know, police have a different function for sure, but we, they live in this community. We are a community that we share. This is a human community as opposed to these are all these different communities. Same thing as these are all different races and we should learn how to get along with each other. I think that's part of the problem. Uh, we should focus more on our similarities perhaps than our differences. Sorry? Perhaps we should, we should focus more on our similarities than our differences. Well, you know, I think that's the issue, that fundamentally, genetically speaking, uh, there aren't those differences. Like, we aren't differences. We we have interesting, colorful flavors and smells and foods and music and sounds and heights and appearance and pigments. And, I mean, it's all really cool. And I think that that's part of the thing, is that what, what is it about difference that continues to be threatening to us? Like, why do, why do we have to see difference in something we have to learn how to tolerate? And, I, you know, I've, I've made the point before that that seems to be part of our agenda. I don't know if that's like an old-fashioned sort of tribal, those people are different, so we might steal their food, or mm. but we still learn this idea. Like, you know, I've, I've brought this before, and I talk with my class about this, too, that, that famous Sesame Sesame Street song, that which is a great show. It's supposed to be all about learning to get along with each other. But we teach kids to look at, you know, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things doesn't belong. We, we, we keep on yeah. looking at that as being, yeah. you know, somehow we have to identify what doesn't look like the norm. And yeah. that part needs to be somehow set apart or understood differently or thought of differently or maybe kind of feared. Hmm. Theo Sellis has been with us, registered family therapist, president of Integrity Works, a group representing young Asian Canadians, is looking at breaking barriers between the Asian and black communities and has written a letter campaign to reach out to elders in their communities. Theo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, Friday saw Turkey's military attempt to overthrow the government, at least a fraction within it. The attempt failed. But has democracy prevailed? To find out more about all of this and give us a bit of an update, Stephen Sademan is with us, Patterson Chair in International Affairs, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, and is with us now. Good afternoon, Stephen. How are you today? Doing well, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Stephen, in layman's terms, try to explain to us what happened over the weekend in Turkey. Well, I'm no Turkey expert, but uh, when we see uh, elements of a military try to overthrow the government, we call that a coup, a coup attempt. Mm -hmm. Uh, Turkey has had a a history of these attempts in the past. What it looks like is that the plotters found out that they had been found out, that that the intelligence service had, had figured out that there was a coup plot underway, and so they decided to act at that moment in time, which then helps to explain why the coup itself was poorly done, that they hadn't managed to capture the president or uh, get enough support from other parts of the military. They, they, they jumped the gun. And the thing about a coup is that you really need to have uh, an element of surprise, and these guys didn't have it. Uh, so how organized was this coup? Uh, I think on the scale of uh, 1 to 10, it's probably about a 5. Really? Uh, that they had some elements of different parts of the different branches of the military, but they clearly did not have enough support across the military. They didn't have support amongst the higher-up military officials, um, and they they clearly didn't uh, were not able to hide their preparation. 
So uh, fairly poorly organized. Uh, when we first heard news of this uh, in the West, some uh, most were saying that it was a win for democracy. Then after time, 24 hours, 48 hours goes by, then uh, attitudes are changing. Is this a win for democracy or is this a government taking advantage of the scenario? Uh, whenever the military tries to seize power, it's not good for democracy. Either they win and you have an authoritarian regime, or they lose and then basic institutions become questioned. It, it's clear that Erdogan is leave, taking advantage of this opportunity to uh, purge large elements of the political system. Uh, he's already shut down a lot of media outlets. He's fired lots of judges. Um, it's clear that he's taking uh, this this uh, one step that uh, uh, that he has a moment in time where he can uh, really gain more power in the political system. So it was bad for democracy either way, and Ergodon is, is certainly going to take advantage of this. Is he going to the opposite extreme? Yeah, I think so. He, I mean, he was always authoritarian. He had already been fairly repressive of the political system. Uh, but this is going to take it two or three or four or five steps further. How concerned is the rest of the world on what is happening there? I think the rest of the world is pretty concerned. depends on who you are. Uh, I think this helps ISIS because it puts uh, Turkey in a difficult position. Uh, it helps Russia because it puts an ally of, of, of the United States and of NATO in a difficult spot. And, but it's, it's difficult for Europe uh, to work with an increasingly authoritarian Turkey. It's hard for the United States. Uh, so it, it, it's it's uh, it's bad news all around. Will this affect Brexit talks at all? No, it's pretty far away from Brexit. Uh, so uh, is anyone saying "told you so" at the end of all of this? Oh, I'm sure there are people who are going to say that. Um, but the reality is, is that Turkey has been struggling for a while now that uh, with its democracy and. Uh, it's always had a challenge about what role the military plays in that. We take for granted uh, that the civilians always control the military. That's one of the fundamental features of all democracies is the military does not play a role. And so Turkey was always uh, a little bit behind the curve because the military had played a role in the, past, in the recent past. And then now you see you know, this weekend where some members of the military thought that they could play a role in determining the future of, of the Turkish government. What will happen to these people who they seem to be rounding up uh, left, right, and center? I mean, what's their future? It's bleak, absolutely bleak. Um, there's been some discussion in Turkey of reviving the death penalty. Mm. Uh, so I don't think they're going to kill everybody they arrest, but they, you know, if, if they do that, then they may... Uh, uh, they may kill some of the leaders. What is Russia's role in all of this? Where will they place themselves? Russia's probably just sitting by the sidelines being very happy about it, uh, because anything that causes trouble for NATO, anything that causes trouble for American allies is a good thing for Russia these days. And an increasingly authoritarian Erdogan may uh, give Russia a friend in the region. There's already some discussion of of, of Putin and, and Erdogan getting together to chat about whatever. Uh, usually Russia and Turkey are adversaries. Uh, but if they're both increasingly alienated from the democratic world, they may see that they have some stuff in common. Uh, why, why, at the end of the day, doesn't uh, Putin use this? And if, if perhaps he has a better relationship with Turkey now, why doesn't he use that uh, to help his relations with the rest of the world instead of seemingly always driving a spike between it? Uh, I think... Uh Putin has, has figured out that his best strategy for domestic politics is to play the role of the troll, to, to constantly stir stuff up and, and, and yeah. to put everybody else on the defensive. 
Uh, I don't see him leaving that strategy anytime too soon. How stable is Turkey right now? I think, well, in terms of uh, the, the current regime, I think they've solidified their, their hold in power. It's going to be very hard for anybody else to engage in a coup. Although, if Erdogan goes too far and antagonizes more of the populace, then something could happen. But I, I think it's more stable this week than it was last week. Uh, and is it still a democracy? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, democracy is based on rule of law, and it seems like a lot of these decisions that, that Erdogan is making is, are not through any kind of due process. We'll see what ha- how they treat the folks they arrest. Will they have r- real trials? Will they have uh, tr- you know? Will they be adjudicated fairly, or is this just whoever uh, is on the wrong side of Erdogan? So uh, I think that uh, that's a really good question. I, I have lots of doubts about the quality of. Turkish democracy today. Will this stabilize things there, or is the next week or two quite tumultuous? I think the regime is going to be stable. I think it's going to be tumultuous in the sense that there's lots of people who are going to be fearing for their jobs and their lives over the next uh, couple weeks as the purges continue. Stephen Sademan has been with us, Patterson Chair in International Affairs, Norman Patterson School of Affairs, uh, Carleton University. Stephen, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Talking about Turkey and what happened over the weekend and if the president is now taking advantage of the situation as a result of, uh, I guess, uh, crumbling the coup attempt. Joining us now is Besma Momani, CIGI Senior Fellow, Associate Professor at the Basile School of International Affairs and is with us now. Hello, Besma. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Uh, how thi- how stable are things in Turkey today? Uh, closer to stable. Uh, you know, things aren't completely back to normal. Of course, uh, Ankara is still not uh, where it should be. It's clearly not safe enough for the president to feel that he can go back to Ankara quite yet. But I think most people think they're, you know, things are, are odd. Definitely there's some odd behavior going on. A lot of protests at night uh, coming out in favor of, of democracy and against the coup. Uh, of course, uh, a lot of uh, you know theories swirling around, and people are, are glued to the television set as more and more generals are being paraded on their TV screens hmm. as part of the as part of the dragnet of those that are being arrested. But um, I would say things are probably going to be under control in favor of the government in the coming days and weeks. How does this happen? Why the coup? Why the coup? Well, that's a big question. I mean, I guess basically uh, the um, military probably uh, assumes that this might be the timing to really take out Erdogan, who is a pretty unpopular leader by by some accounts, even though he's got a really large following. And um, they felt insecure, uh, both by some of Erdogan's uh, policies vis-a-vis Syria and also internally. And so in classic coup sense, uh, armies often react to these situations when they feel as though the country is uh, in a mess and why, they need to come in. Why is he unpopular? He's unpopular, you know, basically one personality. He's a very arrogant man. Um, you know, he, he's the, this kind of person that screams when he talks and, you know, he's uh, shaking his finger. He's, you know, he's, he can turn off a lot of people. I mean, he doesn't have a lot of you know, friends even in the world community. I mean, there's no warm and fuzzy relationship with a lot of people because he's not a warm and fuzzy guy. That said, I think there is a lot of, uh, uh, you know, movements and changes in Turkey that, that he's brought a lot of conservative policies and ideas since he's taken over in 2002 that 
probably most Turks, uh, or at least uh, the way most Turks remember it, are really kind of uh, brand new, and uh, and so there's there's a lot of kind of backlash on that. Uh, when this when when news of this first broke and that the coup was defeated, uh, many were viewing this as a win for democracy. Now people are sort of changing their tone, thinking that the president may be taking advantage of the situation. H- has it got to that stage? Well, both are right. I mean, this is a win for democracy because coups are never good. And a coup d'etat, the last one, you know, led to the arrest of I think half a million people. I mean, there's an enormous risk uh, when you when you bring in a coup, and and most Turks remember the last coup in 1980, or at least uh, those old enough to remember. So no one really wants a coup, and if you look at the polls, uh, you know, only a minority, I think about 20%, say they favor a coup. But uh, truth of the matter is, uh, Erdogan is probably um, the most liberal Democrat you can find, and so he's going to take the country several steps back in that respect, and so it's kind of like pick your poison, go back 10 steps, through a coup or go back five steps with uh, with Erdogan, uh, and that's where we're at right now. Uh, why so popular yet so unpopular? Best of a bad situation? He's, he's populist, but not popular. Hmm. And so, you know, think of what we've got down south, right? This is hmm. a person that's got a following. I've seen, you know, people cry when he talks in, in his speeches. Um, he has a way of drawing thousands and thousands um, into a crowd. Um, he's got this, you know, cultish adoration uh, going for him, but at the same time, his personality, the things that he says, you know, telling women to have five, six babies and it's their national duty, I mean, things that are just, mm. you just don't say nowadays. Um, so he's, he's populist and he's popular, uh, but uh, I don't think that, um, you know, the vast majority of Turks, if they had to choose uh, a leader, um, he would be their first choice. Uh, is it still a democracy today? It's a democracy uh, in the sense of, of course, the, the process of choosing your leader. It's free and fair. Uh, but, of course, uh, you know, jailing journalists and uh, invoking censorship, stopping social media because things are unfavorable. Um, you know, he took a, a doctor to court because he put a Facebook post of him that uh, made him look in an unfavorable matter from the Lord of the Rings characters. And so, I mean, you know, that's, it's democracy, but, you know, he does look like a dictator. Uh, he has quashed the coup. How does he move this forward? How does he turn this into a positive for himself? Does he just keep well, parading he Does he just keep parading people? He's a positive for himself, that's for sure, and he's arresting all of his opponents, hmm. particularly members of the judiciary who would stand in his way of future constitutional reforms. So he's, he's on a roll here in terms of trying to milk this for his own advantage, but... Uh, you know, I think many would have hoped, um, as many of the Western countries are trying to, to, to tell him, is to take advantage of this moment by uh, really embracing democracy rather than, frankly, uh, going up, you know, kind of doing what he's been doing in the past, which is continuing um, his uh, very uh, personal style of rule that uh, offends everybody in their wake. How does this change an already unstable situation in that region? Well, I, I wouldn't put it in the regional context. Um, it, you know, it's a country of 80 million people, and it really can stand alone. But, of course, uh, we just, I think, in, in the context of news today, uh, we just hear too much about instability all over the globe. And so this is not a good thing. Um, Turkey, of course, wants to be uh, an international hub for travel. It wants to be uh, a great place for tourism, which it is. And obviously this doesn't bode well for 
uh, those two important sectors. So it's going to to hurt for them uh, economically, for sure. How does Putin and Russia play into this? Uh, Putin, I mean, interesting. You know, Putin and him haven't had a great relationship. They disagree fundamentally on Syria. Putin is an ally of Assad, and um, Erdogan is is committed to uh, seeing him go. But uh, they have actually had a, uh, a warming of relations in the past three weeks, actually, where Putin and Erdogan met. Um, they have long-standing business relations. In fact, Turkey buys almost all of its uh, gas and oil from uh, the Russians. So there's a lot of economic dealings there. Uh, but I would say the two personalities probably have a love-hate thing. Uh, you know, two dictators in a room is one too many. Uh, good or bad for the world uh, fight on terror? How does this How does this position itself in all of that discussion? Um, I think probably a good thing, uh, because, uh, of course, Erdogan is a key ally and Russia, sorry, Turkey is a key ally in the fight against ISIS, whether it's using the Antilliric um, Air Base, uh, where most American planes take off to, to bomb ISIS territory, and whether it's in having Turkish cooperation to seal off the very porous border where ISIS um, can travel through uh, and get to places like Europe. So it's a good thing. Erdogan is, uh, you know, hard to deal with, and Americans have been very frustrated in the past, but I think when uh, it comes to the core issue, uh, Erdogan is not in favor of seeing ISIS spread uh, globally or in uh, any other parts of, of the region. How is the world viewing uh, this coup being quashed and his handling of it? I think I think the world is watching to see what his reaction is going to be, and, and I think predictably it's become a witch hunt, and that's, I think, problematic. Uh, but, of course, the world um, just wants uh, to see stability, and so it's a matter of how, you know, how quickly can Erdogan bring things back to normal, and, of course, uh, for the Turks that are going to be kind of, uh, you know, found in this dragnet, it's probably not going to be uh, a good time. And so, you know, Turkey itself is, is going through a bit of turmoil, and um, how it will ride this is, is all about Erdogan's own uh, own making, and, and really he has uh, control of this. And so we'll see where he wants to take it, and I'm afraid it's going to be more on the repressive side. Uh, that's what I was just about to ask you. Obviously, he's leading in this in that direction. Could he be using this as an opportunity by handling it differently? Oh, he is. He's using this as an opportunity for sure. Again, by uh, really quashing his, his opponents, uh, arresting them, and again, uh, yeah. using the very um, nebulous concept of, of a ghoulinist to basically label everybody and anybody who's in his way as being that. Besma Momani has been with us, CIGI Senior Fellow, Associate Professor at the Basile School of International Affairs. Besma, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.